When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today I'm going to be sharing the first half of a two-part story. So if you can't stand a cliffhanger, be sure to come back next week when you can binge listen to the whole thing at once. Back in 2011, I challenged myself to ride 29 different mountain bike trails in 29 days. This is the trail-by-trail story of my adventure. So on Saturday, I started my 29 trails in 29 days challenge with a bang, riding the 34-mile Snake Creek Gap time trial in Dalton, Georgia. Temperatures for this January race were predictably cold at the start, just 34 degrees and 18 degrees with the wind chill, but the sun was out and the trails were mostly dry. This was my first time riding this section of the Penhody Trail, and I loved it. With the shuttle buses scheduled to leave for the start at 9 a.m., I was geared up and had my bike loaded by 10 till, only to find that the shuttle vehicles were already full. About 15 of us were stranded there in the parking lot waiting for the first shuttle buses to return to pick us up after the one-hour round trip. Since the race is a time trial, a late start isn't really a big deal, though it was sort of a bummer to stand around in the cold for an hour before getting underway. Other than that, the logistics at the start were great. I'm guessing there were just more race day registrations than the organizers expected. At the trailhead, things were quiet with all our bikes ready and waiting. Apparently, the race plate was blown off my bike on the way over, so I called out my number at the start and blasted down the fire road. The first couple of miles were flat to down, leading to the infamous first stream crossing. On race day, the water was less than a foot deep and roughly 20 yards across, though in past events, the crossing has been much higher and wider, thigh deep by some reports. After the stream crossing, where I managed to keep my feet mostly dry, the trail began a pretty serious single track climb, and I could tell that my legs weren't really feeling it that day. 30 miles to go. The single track climb ends at a gravel road and descends steeply before a short climb back onto single track. During these first several miles, I passed riders back and forth enough times that I wasn't really sure how many were in front of me or behind me. We were at least an hour behind the main field, which wasn't a good feeling. At one road crossing, a volunteer asked how many more riders were behind, which got me worried that perhaps I was the last rider of the day. Fortunately, I later learned there was a sweep group that would pick up any stragglers. Ahead, I found more single track climbing with some ridge exposure before descending fast, swoopy single track down to the first official sag stop at Highway 136. The highway crossing felt a little dangerous because the trail basically pops you up onto the asphalt with a little warning. Fortunately, volunteers were posted to let the riders know when it was safe to cross. This was also the start of the 17-mile time trial option, which meant I was only at the halfway point of the race even though my GPS registered just 15 miles. At two hours in, I felt mentally good about my pace, despite my body feeling exhausted already. If you know anyone who's ridden this section of the Penhody Trail, they've undoubtedly told you about the technical conditions atop the ridge between Snake Creek Gap and Doug Gap. Standing at the sag stop, I was already dreading what was to come, imagining a five-mile-long rock garden that would be just as difficult to walk as it would be to ride. 
There was also a section ahead called the wall that I imagined was some kind of thousand-foot stair-climb hike-a-bike to the top. Mentally, I was at a bit of a low point, worried about how I would tackle the second half. From Snake Creek Gap, the trail climbs at a reasonable grade, and before I knew it, I was coasting back down the other side. This section was easily my favorite with sweeping turns, smooth trail, and bermed water breaks that were perfect for catching air. After reaching the bottom of the descent, there was a gradual fire road climb to the final sag stop and the start of the eight-mile technical finish. I'm using the word technical in quotes here because I've decided I don't really like that word anymore. I mean, mountain biking is full of variety and using a single word to describe difficult conditions doesn't really convey a lot of information about what to expect. Drops, boulder fields, rocks, rock gardens, mud, snow, sand, eroded soil, pea gravel, tight trees, slippery bridges, man-made obstacles, and jumps are all technical, but they each require slightly different mountain bike skills. Anyway, back to the race. After riding several miles, I honestly wasn't sure if I had reached the technical stuff yet. Sure, the trail was slightly rockier than previous sections, but it was still rideable and not all that different from previous sections. Admittedly, a couple of the downhill parts were scary on my hardtail, but I managed to keep the bike upright the whole way down. At this point, the rocky trail was becoming more of a physical challenge as I dealt with leg cramps that seemed to seize every time I slowed to pick my lines through the rocks, especially on the descents. At the wall, I caught up with two other riders and we walked the steep but probably rideable section together. Was this the wall? I honestly wasn't sure because it was so much smaller than what I had built up in my mind. From here, the trail got rockier and the rock gardens seemed to stretch farther between breaks, so I ended up walking my bike a good bit. All told, I probably walked about a mile over the 34-mile course, but before I knew it, I caught sight of the radio towers at the end of the trail. From here, it was a screaming paved descent down to the finish line. There was just a small group at the finish area when I arrived, and the parking lot was nearly empty, which was kind of a bummer, but I was glad to be done either way. It took me around 5 hours 15 minutes, which was about 45 minutes slower than the average rider, meaning it should be pretty easy for me to improve by the end of my 29-day experiment. With a better start, knowledge of the course, and more training, I hope to finish the second time trial in about four and a half hours. Snape Creek Gap Time Trial is a great event covering some of the best single track North Georgia has to offer. I was actually looking forward to going back in just 27 days. On day four of my 29-day challenge, I was already falling behind. We received about five inches of snow in Atlanta a few days before, which would make mountain biking difficult, though obviously not impossible. The real problem, however, were the road conditions, which meant my plans for riding outside the city had to be postponed. Instead, I decided to hit up one of the closest trails to my house in a little park called Ira B. Melton. Jeremy and I agreed to meet up there in the afternoon in hopes that the sleet and freezing rain would be done by then. I gave myself 30 minutes to ride the roughly three miles on the road to the trail, and I quickly realized that wasn't enough time. The roads were basically a Teflon-coated mix of ice with small patches of slush. At the trailhead, I got word from Jeremy that he wouldn't be making it all the way due to two flat tires by the halfway point. Easing my bike onto the trail, I was surprised at how much easier it was to ride than the road had been, though still not easy by any stretch. Snowboarders talk about the glory of first tracks and fresh snow, but I was relieved to see that a few hikers had blazed the way for me earlier in the day. For one thing, their footprints made it easier to follow the trail, but they also served to pack things down a bit. 
this was in the days before fat bikes too. So I was riding these trails on skinny 2.1 inch tires. Anyway, as far as I know, the trails at Ira B. Melton aren't officially open to bikes, nor are they officially closed to bikes either. Imba's stance on this type of arrangement is pretty harsh, saying that mountain bikers should only ride where they're expressly allowed. In my experience at Ira B. Melton, hikers are very friendly and are more than willing to share the trails, especially since many of them choose to walk dogs off leash, which is a similar gray area trail use. The 1.1 mile trail loop at Ira B. Melton is normally sandy to very sandy, and the snowy conditions really weren't that much different. With a thick crust of ice on top of five inches of powder, my tires provided a satisfying crunch as I dodged low tree branches weighed down by the snow and ice. After completing trail number two of my 29 trail challenge, I jumped back on the road for the slog back home. Although the round trip was only seven miles, it took me an hour and a half, and I felt like I had ridden much farther and much harder. The road portion seemed like an extension of the trail, and the ruts I followed along the way were my single track. I saw only a few cars along the normally busy route, which added to the feeling of a real mountain ride. With no sign of the ice and snow melting anytime soon, I was a little worried about falling behind on my goal of riding 29 trails in 29 days. Clearly, I would need to double and triple up in the coming days and weeks to get back on track. Then again, this wouldn't really be a challenge if it weren't January. Day 10. On day 10 of my 29 trail challenge, I managed to add just one more trail to my list. While the ice and snow had melted a good bit, a lot of it was still sticking around, keeping the trails wet and slushy. I called the Gwinnett County Trail Hotline over the weekend in hopes of riding on the east side of town, but all the trails were closed and remained closed on day 10 of my challenge. Since not all mountain bike trails have status hotlines, and I didn't want to drive too far only to find closed trails, I ventured out to Soap Creek, figuring I could at least ride the gravel loop by the river if the trails were shuttered. Turns out parking was free at all national parks that day in honor of the Martin Luther King holiday, so my timing was just right. A year ago, I had helped out during a couple trail work days at Soap Creek, and I was eager to see how the new trails were holding up. I was curious to see how the revegetation was progressing on the old trails I had helped close that spring. The lead into the trail from the riverside was in good shape, but things started getting a little tacky as soon as I got onto the new trail. To be honest, some parts were a little more than tacky. They were downright muddy, and clearly others had ridden the trails this weekend. Near the top of the first climb, I saw one of the new trails being cut, and by the looks of it, I'd say it might be open for mountain bikes, though I wasn't sure. The upper forest road portion of the trail was in good shape, and the new switchback descent on the other side was covered in a nice crust of snow that was still firm and crunchy, not muddy at all. I rode to the upper paper mill road parking lot and headed back, stopping at the lake where I used to ride my bike off the dock and into the water as a beginning mountain biker. That probably wasn't great for the bikes, but it felt awesome in the summer after a long ride. All told, I was able to get in about eight or nine miles of riding that morning, and it felt great to finally get back on the bike. With temperatures in the upper 40s, it was a nice hour in the saddle despite the muddy spots. Cross my fingers for blue skies and dry trails over the next three weeks. On day 13 of my 29-day, 29-trail challenge, I managed to bag three, count them, three mountain bike trails, including one that wasn't even listed in the Singletracks trail database yet. Things were still drying out in the Atlanta area, 
and after driving nearly an hour west of the city to Paulding County, there was a foggy mist in the air which had me worried. Sorba West Georgia does a great job maintaining their trails, and like most clubs, they're serious about keeping riders off wet trails. Based on the weather overhead, I was sure I'd find the trails soaked, though it hadn't rained in a good 36 hours, so I was cautiously optimistic. The Sorba West Georgia website describes the one-and-a-half-mile loop at Sarah Bab Park as a gateway trail, and I assume they're referring to the IMBA designation for trails that are located close to where folks live, often in urban areas. I couldn't find any mention of the park on IMBA's list of gateway projects, but apparently the club had already put in a 1,000 volunteer hours into creating the first loop, which made it a pretty big deal. The trailhead was well marked with an official sign, but beyond the sign, I wasn't really sure where to start. I rode across the field directly behind the sign, past the tennis courts, around a volleyball pit, and beyond baseball fields until finally I saw it, single track. While the field itself was pretty wet, the trails were actually in great shape thanks to fresh leaf cover and the fact that it seemed like no one ever really rode the trails. I followed the yellow arrows around the loop since it was an even day of the week and almost lost the trail a couple of times. It seems like this system may have started out unofficially and now the volunteers were working to rein in the sprawl. There were several small trees down across the trail and at first I thought it was due to the recent snow but after a while, I got the feeling the trees had been placed intentionally. I cleared the trail as best I could, rode a second loop around the trail to make sure I didn't miss anything, and jumped in my car for trail number two of the day. That summer, I had ridden a short time trial at Mount Tabor and had a blast, so I was stoked to get back on that trail. Yes, the trail is short. The main loop is just over three miles. But for some reason, I really like this place. The Rocks of Doom section really flows well, and the hard pack with rocks through the pine trees somehow reminded me of Colorado. During my ride, I got a chance to check out the newest section, called the Booger Trail, and I was amazed at how much mileage had been added since I was there in the summer. There's a surprising amount of climbing here, about 100 feet a mile according to my GPS, and just enough rocks and roots to keep things interesting. The trail was a little sticky in places, so I rode gingerly and cautiously to avoid damaging the trail. All told, I clocked about six miles in 45 minutes, and I was pretty spent, but the third trail of the day was calling my name. The Silver Comet Trail is a paved rail trail that starts just west of Atlanta and runs clear into Alabama and beyond. Road cyclists and joggers love the trail for the scenery and the lack of traffic, but mountain bikers quickly find themselves getting bored with the flat pavement. Fortunately, Paulding Sorba, now Sorba, West Georgia, had me covered. Like most rail trails, the trail corridor at the Silver Comet Trail is fairly wide and is buffered on either side with woods and fields. At some point, someone got the brilliant idea to construct an off-road path that parallels the paved one. Starting at the trailhead off Seaboard Avenue in Hiram, the side trails are well marked with blue blazes and white arrows as the trail leaves and rejoins the Silver Comet Trail. The mountain bike trail makes excellent use of the surrounding topography. And if you look at an elevation profile of the side trails versus the paved trail, you can see there's a good bit of elevation gain and loss compared to the main trail. I had ridden parts of the side trail before, but I decided to explore a different section heading west toward Alabama. For more than three miles, the side trails stayed off the paved path and alternated between wide double track to rocky, tight single track. 
As dusk approached, I wished I could have continued on, but I decided to hop back on the paved path when it seemed like the side trail disappeared for an extended period. I planned to travel to Augusta, Georgia over the weekend to notch at least three more trails, which would bring me to nine trails in 16 days. More precipitation was in the forecast for early the next week, so I needed to get in as much riding as possible over the weekend if I was going to meet my goal. No one ever said riding 29 trails in 29 days would be easy. I just wish it wasn't the weather that was determining my pace. In Augusta, I notched some of my best rides of the challenge to date. Clear skies, tacky trails, and good company are the best one can ask for out of any mountain bike trip. And Augusta definitely delivered. On Friday night, I hit the Pumping Station Trail, also known as Canal Single Track, where Dustin and Drew from Jordan's... On Friday night, I hit the Pumping Station Trail, also known as Canal Single Track, where Dustin and Drew from Andy Jordan's Bicycle Warehouse organized the Moonlight Time Trial. The whole affair was super low-key, with winter-themed costumes, a bonfire, and marshmallows. Definitely my kind of race. The course itself is a fast two-and-a-half-mile single-track loop, and having ridden the trail a few times years ago, I was pumped to give it my best shot. Within the first quarter mile, I realized I didn't know these trails very well at all. There seemed to be side trails and options at almost every turn. At one critical junction, I went right instead of left, and before I knew it, I was riding under an underpass where the trail quickly died out. Turning around, I could see a light across the retention ponds, so I sprinted back to follow the rider in front. At this point, I was doing well and catching up with the other rider ahead. Going into a sharp turn, I tapped the brakes a bit, then accelerated out of the arc when, snap, my right pedal was gone. Heart racing, darkness all around me, I couldn't quite comprehend what was happening. I propped the bike up and ran back down the trail looking for my pedal. Found the shiny pedal a few yards back and frantically started trying to screw it back in, but for some reason the pedal just wouldn't go. As riders passed, everyone asked if I was okay, and I answered yes. I was sure I could get the pedal back in if I just concentrated. After the last rider passed me, I decided the pedal wasn't going to go back in, and that I might have better luck back at the campfire. I limped back with my left foot clipped in, right leg dangling, just hoping that I didn't get lost again. Back at the start, I saw that the crank thread had been stripped when the pedal popped out. Apparently, the pedal had worked itself loose during the ride and was barely hanging on when I accelerated, ripping out the last two to three threads. Drew offered to tap my crank at the shop the next day, an offer I promptly took him up on the following morning. Good as new. The Augusta area is home to the Forks Area Trail System, also known as FATS, in the Sumter National Forest. And it's one of the reasons IMBA decided to hold their biannual summit in Augusta in 2010. It's an official IMBA epic trail, and with good reason. 30-ish miles of flowy scenic single track that's accessible to everyone from beginners to advanced riders. That Saturday, Leah and I decided to hit the trailhead at around 2 p.m. and planned to meet up and ride with Paul, one of my riding buddies from Atlanta. Standing at the car, we were surprised to see Paul emerge from the trail on his mountain unicycle. Apparently the fork on his single speed died after riding 28 miles before we arrived, so he hopped on his muni for another 10 miles of riding. Needless to say, he must have been spent after all that, so we bid him adieu and hit the trail. This time around, we chose to ride the deep step trail, which neither of us had ever ridden. The loop is typical fats with flowy descents that seem to last for miles with very little pedaling. At the road, we decided to ride to the north trailhead and jumped on the tower loop, my current favorite, before returning to the car. 
For those keeping track, we rode just two out of the six FATS loops. As tempting as it may be, FATS still just counts as one trail on my journey. On Sunday morning, I met up with Dustin, Bill, Mark, and Hobby to ride the Keg Creek Loop on Clark's Hill Lake. Keg Creek was the only area trail I had yet to ride, despite riding in Augusta for more than 15 years, which says a lot about the number of trails to choose from in the area. It was cold at the start, just 29 degrees, but the sun was out and conditions were good. Of all the trails I rode that weekend, Keg Creek appeared the least traveled, and I was surprised at the number of routes along the way which is probably why three of the guys in our group were riding full suspension bikes, unlike myself. Near the end of the loop, Bill, Dustin, and Mark ducked out on a double track toward Mistletoe State Park, while Hobby and I rode back to the trailhead. At the car, I reset my GPS and headed for the Bartram Trail in Wildwood Park. Although I had never ridden this section, I was quite familiar with it. Fifteen years earlier, the trail was seldom used. So my younger brother reblazed this portion of the trail for his Eagle Scout project. Before the project began, the two of us attempted to follow the faded yellow blazes from Washington Road into Wildwood Park, but we ended up getting lost and bushwhacked our way back to the car. Later, with a group of scout volunteers, my brother and I returned and broke into two groups, each with walkie-talkie, since we didn't have GPS back then. Each group followed the trail until it disappeared, and we used the radios to link up in the middle. With fresh blazes and improved bridges, we reopened the trail to hikers once again. Though, as far as I know, no one was riding bikes on the trail back then. Found that the trail had been improved even more, and it was surprisingly well-worn on that Sunday, much more so than Keg Creek. I rode to mile marker 13, about five miles in, and headed back to the car. The trail actually continues on to Petersburg Campground, and eventually to West Dam for about 20 miles of single track. By day 17, I had notched just 10 trails, leaving me a week behind schedule. Up until this point, I averaged about 9.5 miles per trail and rode my bike in two states, Georgia and South Carolina. My plan was to add a third state, Alabama, in the week to come. Fingers crossed that the weather would stay dry. Day 19. It's raining in Atlanta which means I won't get to go on my regular Tuesday night ride for the third week in a row. Day 19. It was raining again in Atlanta, which meant I wouldn't get to go on my regular Tuesday night ride for the third week in a row. I was hoping I would at least get to ride the next Tuesday, since it would be my last Tuesday during the challenge. Fortunately, the previous day was perfect for riding, 55 degrees and sunny. I hit the Harbins Park trails at around 2 p.m. and had my fastest ride yet, nine miles in about 50 minutes. I've ridden these trails several times, but that day I decided to switch things up a bit and rode some sections backwards. Everything still flowed really well and I had a blast. Much to my surprise, I wasn't the only mountain biker playing hooky that day. Next, I decided to ride the trails at Tribble Mill. Lee and I had ridden at Tribble Mill a couple years ago, and frankly, we found the whole place pretty confusing. There seemed to be side trails at every turn, and it was tough to get into a good flow there. On day 19 of my challenge, I revisited the trails and found the network had been reined in pretty well by the local club and race organizers. I climbed the wide gravel paths and descended on smooth single track that made the most out of every downhill. Some parts, like the area around the lake, were still a little sketchy and confusing, but clearly the hikers and dog walkers were to blame there. My only wish was that the Parks Department would install some kind of trailhead kiosk explaining the blazes, 
because they were blue and white blazes that really didn't seem to make sense. And I also wished that I had a good overview of the trail layout. But other than that, I really had a blast. On day 20 of my 29-day trail challenge, I struck out early with three trails on my to-do list. Destination, East Central Alabama and the Talladega National Forest. The Seal Award trails are located near Salicauga, Alabama, along the shores of Lake Howard. The forecast for the day put the high in the low to mid-50s, but when I arrived, the thermometer in my car read 29 degrees, and there was a glaze of frost on the grass. I quickly threw on a pair of tights under my shorts and jumped on the trail at 7.30 a.m. Fortunately, I had gained an hour since Alabama is in the central time zone. There was an eerie fog laying low on the glossy surface of the lake, and it seemed like I was the only person for miles around. I was a little worried the trails might be sloppy due to the hard rains on Tuesday, but with temperatures well below freezing, the mud was temporarily transformed into hard pack. The Seal Award trails feature some of the buffest single track I've ever ridden, and it would have been a shame to damage them in any way. Because the trails were so smooth and the elevation changes were slight, I was able to average about 10 miles per hour despite stopping to take photos and make adjustments on my bike. On the way back, the temperatures were rising, and the previously frozen trails were starting to thaw a bit, especially the short, muddy access road across the upper dam. Back at the car, I had clocked about 15 miles by 9 a.m. Great start. The highest point in Alabama, Chiha State Park, features about six miles of mountain bike trails along the top of the ridge. There's a $2 per person entry fee, but it's well worth it to access the great winter views and challenging rocky single track. After riding Seal Award, I was expecting more buff, smooth single track, but instead I found rocky, rooty single track with a distinct mountain feel. Even though there are only six miles of trail, I got a great workout for the rock gardens in the upcoming Snake Creek Gap time trial. I parked at the top of the Mountain Express Trail, despite the fact that I usually prefer to park low and ride high. The descent to the main gate is fast and rocky, and there seem to be several side trails leading to the paved road on the right. I stopped in a spot where ice crystals on the ground looked like someone had smashed a car windshield, and I guessed the ice had fallen from tree limbs in the wind. The climb back up wasn't as bad as I had imagined, but the rocks certainly made things difficult. The upper and lower springs loops featured rhododendron tunnels and fast descents, and I doubled back a couple of times to make sure I hit everything. Two trails done before lunchtime. Just north of Anniston, Alabama, and only a few miles from I-20, the Chocolaco Wildlife Management Area featured some great single track, including Iron Legs and Mark's Loop. The year before, there had been talk about Anniston working to become a mountain bike mecca, and based on what I found in Chocolaco and Chiha State Park, there's Definitely a case to be made there, especially once Coldwater Mountain opened up. I had intended to ride a trail called Jeans Loop in Chocolaco, but after searching around and riding down some muddy ATV trails, I stumbled upon a single-track trail labeled Mark's Loop. The trail started off pretty easy, fast and mostly flat, but as it wound its way up the mountain, things got more challenging. I even came across what appeared to be freshly cut single-track, with blue survey tape flapping in the wind, and I was happy to do my part to break things in. After riding about six miles, I headed back to the car, but I was really bothered that I couldn't find Jeans Loop, despite having a detailed topo map with me showing the trail. I cruised up and down the gravel road, snooped around a few gated double-track trails, and sniffed out a couple single-track trails, but they all seemed to disappear quickly. Finally decided to call it a day, 
but I know I'll be back again to ride more trails in Chocolaco. On day 20, I broke the halfway mark in my quest, 15 trails. Would I be able to bag all 29 trails in 29 days? Stay tuned next week to find out.